Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the Eurotrip. It's James here, and I know you weren't expecting us to be back with you until Sunday when we begin our daily coverage from Turin as the live shows of Eurovision 2022 come ever closer. But over the last few months, I've been working on something a little bit different to give you as a nice little treat. 2022 marks the 25-year anniversary since Katrina and the Waves won the Eurovision Song Contest for the United Kingdom. And since then... Well, it's safe to say that the country's results haven't been as good as many people would have hoped for. So I thought I'd try and answer the question, why hasn't the UK won the Eurovision Song Contest for 25 years? I've spoken to loads of people for this. Many you'll recognise from the podcast, such as Krista Bjorkman and James Fox, who represented the UK back in 2004, but also some new names as well, like Simon Proctor, he's a TV producer in the UK, Emma Kelly, she's an entertainment journalist, and Carrie Grant, who, if you live in the United Kingdom, you'll definitely recognise her name from TV talent shows, and she also represented the UK back in the 1980s. I've really enjoyed putting this together, and I hope you enjoy this journey with me as we try and figure out where it's gone wrong for the UK at the Eurovision Song Contest. Both Rob and I will be back on Sunday, where we'll both be in Turin, bringing you the best coverage of Eurovision 2022, But in the meantime, sit back and enjoy this special gift from me to you. May 2021, Rotterdam, the Netherlands. Another thrilling edition of the Eurovision Song Contest was in full swing. The competition was back for the first time in two years. Award-winning songwriter James Newman was representing the United Kingdom with his self-described banger called Embers, hoping to use the contest to launch his solo career. But then came the results. And the United Kingdom gets from the public zero points. How did it come to this? Puppets on a string. It has been sung by Sandy Shaw. 
gentlemen, this means that the United Kingdom won. Kisses for me, say for your kisses for me. Bye bye, baby, bye bye. The United Kingdom has done it again. Oh, heavens, heavens, they've done it again. She's the winner, Katrina, and the The UK is arguably one of, if not the, most successful country in the Eurovision Song Contest. Alongside the five winners we've just heard, the country has a further 18 top three results in the grand final of the world's biggest music competition. But since 1997, that's a full 25 years ago, the UK has failed to add another victory to its already impressive collection. Instead, the nation has found itself more often than not at the bottom end of the scoreboard, finishing last overall five times, two of which with the dreaded nil point, zero points. Its broadcaster, the BBC, has seemingly tried everything to change its fortunes around, but over the last quarter of a century, results inside the top ten have only come their way three times, and the most recent time was over a decade ago. So with help from artists, TV producers, journalists and more, let's figure out why the UK hasn't won the Eurovision Song Contest for 25 years. You just have to accept it as a good platform. Oh, well, yeah, those countries are going to vote together anyway. What's the point? Oh, big surprise, Greece and Cyprus, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's just part and parcel of your vision commentary in the UK. The people you see on TV are the people who set the tone. And if you've got a panel mocking it, then it immediately sets the tone for the event and for the show that evening. You cannot continue to mock it because that will never open up for something serious. I think the problem with this nil point was actually to do with their performance on the night. I kind of hope they don't get any points because it's going to be a bigger story. Yeah, 50-50 with the song. You know, I committed to it and I liked it, but did I think it had a chance of winning? Not really. That's terrible. That's bullshit. That's super strange. That's so strange. It's. I do understand why the artists in UK don't want to do Eurovision because that's not a way to do music. Hi there. I'm James Rowe, and I've been a fan of the Eurovision Song Contest for over a decade now. I've produced TV programmes about the competition, I host a weekly podcast about it, and have featured across the BBC as an expert on Eurovision. In that time, I've seen some incredible things. Sweden adding two wins to their tally, Australia making their debut, and even Flowrider made an appearance for San Marino. Remember that? But one thing I haven't seen is the United Kingdom score a decent result. But why is that? Well, the answer isn't as simple as you might imagine. And if it was, I wouldn't be making an hour-long documentary about it. Eurovision is, of course, a song competition. And I'm sorry to say that the UK hasn't always sent good enough songs to win. And I'm also sorry to say that, contrary to popular belief, Politics has nothing to do with it, as much as Terry Wogan made you think it did. In fact, shall we start with Terry? I think Terry Wogan's commentary has gone through a bit of a journey over the years. 
Paul Jordan, often called Dr Eurovision, is an expert on the Eurovision Song Contest. In the 70s, he wasn't as critical. He was always quite jokey and quite jovial in his commentary, but really the 80s were a turning point. And that was a time when the viewing figures were a bit lower for Eurovision. It was a time when the winners weren't becoming hits. The UK entries weren't necessarily becoming hits. Certainly towards the mid-80s, that was true. And yeah, by the late 80s, it was almost an irrelevance, really. And Wogan really latched onto that. I think towards the 90s, as the contest expanded, he was still amusing. He still viewed it as a, a fun event, but he really hammered home that this was somehow irrelevant to the wider world and the wider music scene. And you see his commentary evolving even further after the year 2000, when the UK's fortunes really did start dipping alongside the rise of new countries and new entrants for the first time. Terry Wogan first commentated on Eurovision for the BBC in 1971 and held the role uninterrupted from 1980 until he put the microphone down in 2008. I didn't start watching the contest until after his tenure, but have often wondered why the general perception of the competition is so negative. Emma Kelly is an entertainment journalist who has worked for the likes of The Guardian and The Metro. I grew up watching Terry Wogan. That was like the voice of Eurovision for me because when I was watching it as a kid, it was always Terry Wogan. And he was largely negative about a lot of things. And in a way, I don't blame people for thinking the way they do now because they're constantly just being fed it you're hearing oh well yeah those countries are going to vote together anyway what's the point oh big surprise greece and cyprus blah 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 like that's just part and parcel of your vision commentary in the uk as both emma and paul mentioned terry's commentary really did become more negative than positive and given the majority of the population's only exposure to the competition comes during the grand final every may it's no surprise that the general perception is so bad. Let's take 2003, for example. Here's a selection of Terry's comments from the voting sequence. These are the results of the Austrian televotes. Germany, one point. Germany, one point. Oh, Osterreich has let the side down a bit. Poland, ten points. Poland, ten points. La Bologna, deep one. That's the old politically correct vote there. Germany, four points. Germany, four points. Is it me? Are you as confused by this strange scoring as I am? Netherlands, five points. Netherlands, five points. Can't make head the tail of this. And 12 points for Belgium. And 12 points for Belgium. Belgium is strong. Every year, I sit here and think, what are they doing? And les 12 points, 12 points pour la Belgique. Tell Surprise. You know, sometimes I think I must have been at a different contest. Whether it's calling the voting political, making snarky comments when certain countries don't appear to appease his theory, or straight up laughing when countries he didn't expect to do well defy his expectations, his approach to commentary really did paint an unfair and unrepresentative picture of the contest. Why did I choose 2003? Well, that year holds an unenviable piece of history for the UK. The country's entry that year was Gemini with Crybaby. On the surface of it, it sounds poppy. It sounds like European disco. You know, someone sat in a room and ticked a lot of boxes and then thought, let's have a a beautiful blonde duo singing this song. Oh, just listen to that. 
Not exactly the vocals you need to score highly in Eurovision. And that's the problem. The song failed to score a single point. The first time it had ever happened in the UK's history. Carrie Grant is a singer and vocal coach, and she also represented the UK at Eurovision as part of Sweet Dreams in 1983. I think the problem with this nil point was actually to do with their performance on the night. It was that they came into the song in a totally different key to the key that the song is written in and recorded in. And they said that they didn't have any track in their ears in their earphones which is fair enough except that they were in time so they must have had something I don't know I think personally it looked to me like a classic nerves got the better of them and they just really fell to pieces it's just unfortunate you know any for anyone watching you could not give that points it was impossible to give it points because it was such a dreadful performance I'm not saying that they're dreadful performers. I'm just saying it's a dreadful performance on that night. Um, and so I actually think they got no points because the performance was, was not up for, for gaining one point. Nerves got the better of them. Dreadful performance. Impossible to give it points. Hard to disagree, really. The music industry reaction after the competition was almost unanimous too, with TV judge and music manager Louis Walsh adding... It's like somebody went into Boots, found the first person they saw behind the counter, asked them if they could sing, and they said no, but they picked them anyway. The thing was just a disgrace, the worst song I have ever heard, and so out of tune they deserve to be last. Britain has some of the best singers in the world, but that was a joke. Terry, however, the voice of Eurovision for so many, who would influence the opinions of the millions watching at home, thought otherwise. I think that's a little bit tough on Gemini. I thought they sang very well, performed very well. Did not deserve to get zip points, but I think, as I say, there is an element of political voting goes on here. There it is. The politics excuse rolled out again. But this time, he went a step further. I think so the United Kingdom is suffering the from what I would call post-Iraqi backlash. The 2003 competition was taking place a matter of weeks after the invasion of Iraq by the US and the UK, an invasion which was condemned by many across Europe. Terry decided to find something to blame Gemini's bad result on, rather than admit that their performance just wasn't up to scratch. On the night of the final, Cary Grant was a panellist on Liquid Eurovision, a review show that aired on TV directly after the grand final. With the reprise of that year's winner, Sir Tab Erna, taking place in the background, here's host Lorraine Kelly asking Carrie about the result. On a more serious note, do you think it will change the contest at all? Do you think it will change the way that we do it, perhaps? I think Carrie? that Britain really does need to seriously look at how we choose the artists, because that was not a bad song. It was sung awfully. I mean, particularly the girl just was so out of tune. Mm. We have to have singers who can actually cut it live. That's got to be an absolute prerequisite for representing your country, really. Simon Proctor was the producer of Liquid Eurovision and recalls a key moment from the night. So Dominic Smith, who, who was head of delegation, who had produced Song for Europe that, that year, he had been sat with them, God love him, all through the points and towards the end had said, I kind of hope they don't get any points because it's going to be a bigger story. Because Dominic had been fighting for years to make 
Song for Europe and the selection a bigger deal. And I think he realized that this would be a tipping point and it might make the BBC sit up and pay more attention to it, give it a better slot and, and a bigger budget. So we've got music industry professionals lambasting the choice of Gemini and TV producers actively hoping for bad results in the hope that it will make the BBC sit up and take note. But did it? Here's Simon again. The day after your show goes out, you get the viewing figures. So on the Sunday or the Monday morning, the viewing figures come in. And there was an incredible 11 and a half million people watching Gemini get nil point. So the audience in the UK always goes up for the voting. Bizarre. So you've not seen the songs, but you want to see the points. And um, it crept up and up and up. 11 and a half million is, you know, the Strictly final gets maybe 11. And then we went back in on the Monday to kind of do our clear up and do, do our thank yous and things. And what was really interesting for me was there was no assessment. There was no, right, we have to have a meeting. We have to talk about next year. We have to look at how this could never happen again. There was just elation about the viewing figures and um, very little about Gemini's performance and the null point. It was like, goodness me, the viewing figures were amazing, which I know probably sounds strange to you, but as a telly person, it is kind of how TV people think. As well as being a TV producer, Simon Proctor is also a big Eurovision fan. And when he found himself on holiday in the spring of 2003, before Gemini's Nil Point, he stumbled upon a Swedish TV show called Melody Festivalen. I went back into work on the Monday, so this is pre-Eurovision, full of this show, rang SVT, went through to the Mellow department, and who answered the phone? Krista. Krista is Krista Bjorkman. He used to be a singer, but in 2002, he became the producer of Melody Festivalen, working for the Swedish broadcaster SVT. Known to fans as Mellow or Melfest, this is a glitzy Saturday night TV show that tours the country's arenas and features around 30 songs, battling it out to represent Sweden at Eurovision. Very different to the UK's Song for Europe, which was a one-off Sunday afternoon show lasting 30 minutes. So what did that phone call sound like? This is what Simon said to Krista. We've just had our national final. It was nothing on a scale with yours because this was Sunday afternoon with Terry. He said, oh, let's let's swap tapes. He said, you send me a video of your final. I'll send you a video of Finalen. So the video of Finalen triggered an awful lot and came to an awful lot of meetings with me. And I would wave it in the air. And I think at one stage I was banned from taking it to meetings. As a telly person, I couldn't believe this. I could not believe that this was you know, a six week, five week show then, five week show, an arena, people bought tickets. It was all over the press the next day. I, I was kind of obsessed with it. Motivated by Gemini's Nil Poir and seeing what Sweden was doing, clearly Simon, alongside head of delegation Dominic Smith, wanted to turn the UK's fortunes around and avoid another bad result. My big target was that people didn't switch on the Eurovision final. And that was the first time they'd heard our song because... For so many years, people didn't hear the song until the big night. And I thought that was such a wasted opportunity. So my big desire was obviously to have a hit show, try to come up with a hit format, but make it event TV. So eventually the BBC signed it off. I had come up with making your mind up, kind of just brainstorming with somebody. And they really liked that because it was a Eurovision winner. And the BBC said, look, it needs to be Terry. 
because there'd been attempts with different presenters in the previous few years, but they were like, look, if this is Saturday night, we need to have Terry because you're bringing people to a new format. And Terry is Eurovision and Terry will talk about it in the radio. So despite his attitude towards Eurovision, Terry was still considered the best man for the job by the bosses at the BBC. Perhaps they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. He was obviously the voice of Eurovision, but he was doing more harm than good to the competition. The new show, Making Your Mind Up, came and went, and former Fame Academy contestant James Fox took victory. His song, Hold On To Our Love, wasn't produced by nobodies, far from it in fact. One of the songwriters was Gary Miller, whose credits include songs for Katy Perry, David Bowie and Kylie Minogue. But it doesn't appear that James was that hopeful. I liked it uh, and I think my gut reaction was pretty much right in terms of how it went on the night. It's very, it was a sort of mid-tempo country pop ballad, for want of a better description. So it was... uh, I didn't think it stood much chance in a competition when you've only got three minutes. You know, you want something that's got a big impact, maybe some sort of quirk. Yes, it repeated the chorus a lot. It was catchy, but I thought the tempo was maybe a little bit in the middle. Uh, I, I was sort of, yeah, 50-50 with the song. You know, I committed to it and I liked it, but did I think it had a chance of winning? Not really, but I thought it was good enough to go and, uh, to go and do it and, and give it a go, you know. Now, I often wonder about what the right approach for the contest actually is. Some would argue that countries should always be sending songs they think could win. Others suggest that aiming for a quote-unquote good result is enough, especially after suffering a particularly bad one the year before. Perhaps that's a whole other debate, but what is clear is that with Simon and Dominic, there was at least an appetite to change the country's fortunes and in turn change the perceptions in the UK. Now, for James at Eurovision, he came home with a 16th place result. At least it wasn't last, eh? Well, the year after, Making Your Mind Up returned to our screens in broadly the same guise as the year before. That year's competition was won by Javine, formerly of ITV talent show Pop Stars The Rivals. But at Eurovision, it didn't end well. Performing in the dreaded position of second in the running order, a position which has provided no victories and more last places than any other, Javine came home 22nd out of 24. So what was going wrong? Well, a theme had been developing. Since the new format of Making Your Mind Up was introduced, both winners were already household names, having already competed on other TV singing competitions. James Fox. I think people were used to voting for me. I felt like I had a real head start on the other acts because they were relatively unknown, the other acts. And I'd just been on this TV show the summer before. So it was a bit, um, yeah, it was almost a bit unfair really when I look back because it did, did very well with the TV vote. I think it was one of the biggest wins, you know, of, of like a selection show. So that was nice to know you had the backing of uh, the country. That's the bit I like about that show. It's not as if you just selected out of nowhere like they do on more recent times. It felt like I had the sort of nation's backing there and support, you know. Having listened to the songs that were also in contention in 2004 and 2005, I'm not sure any of them would have bettered James's or Javine's results. But then came 2006. The only person who thought Daz Samson was going to win was Daz Samson. 
Again, Making Your Mind Up continued into 2006, and the lineup featured some well-known names. Amongst them, though, was Daz Sampson. He'd had some top 40 singles as part of Bus Stop and Uniting Nations, but he wasn't exactly a household name. So Daz was the biggest enthusiast for the competition, and him being this straight Mancunian DJ with self-belief that what Eurovision needed was some school kids dancing around and some Daz rap was fantastic. We didn't think he'd win, and he did. And he beat your Kim Marshes, who'd been part of Hearsay and had solo hits, Anthony Costa, who'd been part of Blue. So that element of profile, I think, works to an extent. But if you just latch on to something that the viewers like, and it's that instant three minutes, which of course Eurovision is, then they go for it. So perhaps the public profile wasn't the deal maker after all. And it was just coincidental for James and Javeen. Daz duly went to Eurovision in Athens in 2006, but could only muster 19th place in the final. So what was going wrong? I don't think it went wrong for James. I think James was restoring our faith in the contest and restoring people's faith that the UK cared. So James obviously came lower in the scoring than we would have liked, but then there were some other really good songs and quite a few male ballads that year that maybe semi-cancelled each other out. Javine sang second and didn't sing brilliantly and I think was maybe behind the curve a little bit in terms of that whole ethnic sound. But I think that's what maybe went wrong there. I still think that she and James were the songs to send. And I think Daz was the song to send. And I think maybe it was too British, but he did the work, he did the promotion. And on the big night, you just don't know. Making Your Mind Up continued into 2007, but without Simon Proctor on the production team. And that year's edition was a disaster. Put aside for a moment Terry's cynicism towards Eurovision itself, the show culminated in him announcing the wrong winner. And tonight, I can reveal the act that will represent the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland will be... What a way to make it look like you're in control, eh? That just shouldn't happen. But it's the celebrity panel I want to focus on. Much like your X Factors, Fame Academies and Pop Idols at the time, the BBC opted to have a panel of so-called experts to give an opinion after each of the performances. Some panellists were worthy of their space, such as Cary Grant, who we heard from earlier. But others? Not so much. Paul Jordan. The people you see on TV are the people who set the tone. And if you've got a panel mocking it, then it immediately sets the tone for the event and for the show that evening. And, and I'm a big fan of Lorraine, and Lorraine's a big Eurovision fan herself. And I think she's absolutely the right person to be involved. She genuinely loves it, and she is a big fan. Uh, but there's also, you know, people that were on those panels over the years that really had nothing to do with Eurovision. I mean, John Barrowman, you know, he knew nothing about it. Quite often they were getting factual things wrong, saying, you know, ballads never win Eurovision the year after, you know, Maria won Eurovision for Serbia with a big ballad, stuff like that. And I think, you know, that's things that your average viewer will never pick up on. But it's kind of reflective of a wider point about lack of attention to detail and lack of a cohesive approach. 
In my eyes, there's very little need for a panel to cast an eye over the performances, but obviously this was the done thing on TV talent shows at the time. Sadly though, even as recently as the selection programme in 2019, the BBC included a panel, often including people who weren't music experts, nor did they understand the Eurovision Song Contest. So what do panels, announcing the wrong winner and defamatory comments, have to do with whether or not the UK is successful? You cannot continue to mock it because that will never open up for something serious. That's Krista Bjorkman. Remember, the man from Sweden who we mentioned earlier? He's the one who took over Sweden's selection process in 2002 and made it into one of, if not the, biggest TV show in Sweden. He argues that the constant negativity in the British media has an impact on the talent that puts itself forward to represent the UK. As we've heard already, Terry Wogan's commentary was almost always negative, and when Graham Norton took over in 2009, although he toned it down, it was still rather negative. Here's Krista, telling us about how the Swedish TV commentator, Edward Afsillen, approaches the role. The balance he has in commenting is exactly where it should be. It's, yes, he's funny, but he never ridicules the competition. He never questions the trustworthiness of the result. He explains, you know, when people vote for a neighbor, he explains, this is quite natural. It happens most of the time that the culture is obviously basically the same and that the Balkan votes for each other Yeah, well, they have the same language and the same artists. It's natural. I mean, you cannot avoid that. But to win, you need everyone. You cannot win from one region. You can only win if you're really good. Now, that's worth looking at a little bit closer. For years now, there's been lazy excuses bandied about that it's all political, everybody votes for their neighbours and nobody votes for the UK. Here's an example from Terry's commentary in 2000. It's Denmark's Grand Prix de l'Europe. It carried it off by 40 points over Russia with Latvia in third, Estonia in fourth, Germany in fifth, Ireland in sixth. And I have a statistic here. Apart from Ireland, the top seven countries are all Baltic states. Make what you like of that now. Now, despite him wrongly suggesting that Denmark, Russia, Germany and Sweden are all Baltic states, it's grossly unfair to suggest that the top scorers at Eurovision that year gained points purely based on geography. After all, eight of the countries that the UK gave points to in 2000 went on to finish in the top ten. Sadly though, these sorts of arguments and excuses only snowballed as the UK saw one of its biggest political moments in history unfold in 2016. Emma Kelly. If you're seeing maybe songs doing quite badly and not really knowing why, and then suddenly you're like, no, well, it's because they all hate us because of Brexit. And you can just say that, and then you are excused from everything from now on. And you don't have to like look deeper into the reasons why the song might not be doing well. You're going to stick to it. It's a good narrative to carry forward. It's old school attitudes mixed with new circumstances. The Brexit excuse has become a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card for cynics of Eurovision recently. It was even used by an unlikely critic. Now, one European institution, I'm sure the maze, are firmly behind, is Eurovision. Now, we're not leaving that as well, are we? No. (laughs) 
<laughs> Although I'm, I'm tempted to say in current circumstances, I'm not sure how many votes we'll get. <laughs> yeah, well, that's going to be very interesting. For the avoidance of doubt, that was indeed then-British Prime Minister Theresa May speaking on the eve of the 2017 contest, peddling the Brexit excuse. Oh, it just drives me crazy. Side note for that one. The UK actually scored its best result for six years in the first contest after Brexit. But still, it's all political, isn't it? I don't think I've ever seen any anti-bias against any country, really. Like, in, like, the press room, you get the sense of the songs that are really landing because people are stopping and watching and cheering. And that just wasn't happening for the UK. And it's not because they're like, oh, we're just going to sit here stony-faced because the UK are on. It's just because it doesn't grab the room. And if it's not grabbing a room of journalists who are paid to be there, <laughs> it's not going to grab the attention of someone sitting at home on their second bottle of wine, <laughs> like with a takeaway. It's not going to work. At the end of the noughties, the British viewing public was still in charge of choosing the UK's entry for the Eurovision Song Contest. But the results over the previous years were suggesting that things had gone off track. Christa Bjorkman. It's so easy to lose grip of it. You, you, you know, you think you have it. You think you understand it. Then for some reason, you, you take a detour somewhere and, and you're on that road and you believe that's the right one. But you should really be here. Krista knows exactly what he's talking about. From 1995 to 2004, Sweden had an average result of sixth place, including a victory in 1999. But the following six years saw their results plummet, registering only one top ten and the country's first ever failure to qualify for the grand final. He believes that the UK could get back on track if somebody like him were at the helm of their selection process. I believe if they could only find someone who is so passionate about it and understands it, and I really, really wish in my heart that it would be a, a rich person, obviously, because that's much better, who knows the market, the music market, inside and out, and can, and can reach out to the right people and, and, and the right composers. But of course it's doable. You just have to accept it as a good platform. Well, that looked like it was happening in 2009, as one of the country's most talented musical theatre composers, Andrew Lloyd Webber, was put in charge of writing a song and aiding the selection of an artist. And it all went well. After failing to reach the top 10 for seven years, and just one year after the country's second ever last place finish, Jade Ewan brought home a fifth place finish. Sadly though, that didn't continue, as for 2010, Andrew Lloyd Webber was replaced by Pete Waterman. This man was a powerhouse in the music industry in the 80s and 90s, but he hardly had his finger on the pulse of the British music scene in 2010. Fast forward to the end of May that year, and the UK registers another last place finish, their third in eight years, their worst string of results in history. In Eurovision, there are two ways of choosing your song. A national selection, a live TV show featuring an audience vote, or an internal selection, where the broadcaster chooses the artists themselves. In 2011, following this bad run of results, there was a new plan at the BBC. Carrie Grant. The BBC decided to choose the artists internally and, and they thought the best thing to do to pick up that family audience would be to pick heritage, what we call heritage artists. So blue, 
Bonnie Tyler, Engelbert Humperdinck, these artists that have been around for a long while, they've got big audiences, they've got lots of fan base, they're known in Europe. Again, they're trying to just tick those boxes. Blue did quite well, actually, (laughs) 11th. I mean, these days, that's just like triumphant, isn't it? But Bonnie and Engelbert Humperdinck, not so well. So it does throw up, I'm sure, behind the scenes. I, I would love to have been involved in some of those behind the scenes meetings. That's something... I would like to have done that actually at some point. I've never been invited to do that, but just to be, just to hear what their reasoning is. Because I think as the public, we're like, why, why do they choose to do that? You know, we're trying to make sense of it, aren't we? Like, and we all feel like we've got a solution. What about, what about if Robbie Williams just did it with one of his songs, he'd win then? You know, that's something I've heard that argument, you know, a million times, but I think for even someone like Robbie is probably looking at what happens with artists like those heritage artists and thinks, Hell no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) I'm not taking one for the team. Forget it. And it's understandable why artists would feel that way. After all, Eurovision can go one way or another. Perform well and get a good result, you'll be remembered forever. Do badly and you may never get a record deal again. We were already known mostly for a song called Walking on Sunshine and... We were more of a rock band. You wouldn't have naturally thought Katrina and the Waves and then think Eurovision. Katrina Leskinich was the lead singer of Katrina and the Waves, the last UK entry to win the Eurovision Song Contest. Well, we were asked if we had a song that would be appropriate for Eurovision because the guy who was working in the UK, Jonathan King, he knew the band and he was looking for a pop song and he said, come on, you guys must have something for Eurovision. And we said... Well, yeah, you know, we've got this song that we recorded four years ago called Love Shine a Light. And we never put it on an album because, you know, just it wasn't quite right for the band. And Jonathan King listened to it and he said, well, this is absolutely perfect. In fact, I think this could win. And we just said, well, okay, off you go. Good luck with that. And probably a couple of days later, Jonathan King came back and he said, they want you to do it. And we were like, oh, okay. And then Warner Records came back to us and they said, we'll give you an album deal if you do it. (laughs) So we didn't have a a record deal at the time. We'd sort of been playing musical chairs with a lot of different labels. And we thought, well, we haven't signed with Warners yet. So that's how we ended up doing it. So even in 1997, when the UK's worst result of the decade at that point was only 10th place, artists were still apprehensive about taking part in Eurovision and needed incentives to take the plunge. We thought as things progressed that it looked like possibly we would have a good chance of not coming last. So we thought it was a big risk, but we thought it was a risk worth taking. There's a huge audience for Eurovision. And as it turns out, they're really beautiful fans. It's like a Eurovision family. Once you've done it and once you've won it, People embrace you. They remember you. They, they, you know, they honor you and respect you for for just being a part of that illustrious group of winners of Eurovision, of which I'm very, very happy to be a part. Thankfully for Katrina, it definitely was worth the risk. But I wonder how often other artists and songwriters find themselves asking the same question: Is it worth the risk? Carrie Grant. I think in the closed door meetings, I imagine there are conversations about the quality of the song. I think every conversation that I've had with record companies throughout the years and people that are involved in Eurovision is that 
if we have a good enough sum, it would win. And I think that's the argument that is made constantly in the industry is that we have a kind of half-baked artist with half-baked songs. We're still not putting good enough songs in. And I do wonder, actually, because record companies have access to all the best writers in the world, I think potentially what happens is if a song is brilliant, absolutely, they know it's a surefire hit. Wow, this is the best thing that's been written in the last couple of years. It's likely to win the Ivor Novello. The last thing they will do is allow that song to be used in Eurovision. Why has it got to this point, though? Simon Proctor. Up until 2003, which was Gemini year, the songs were sourced via BASCA, the British Association of Songwriters. There would be a jury of 20 people who would listen to a shortlisted, maybe 25, 30 songs. I was on that jury in 03. I can tell you, hand on heart, the Gemini song was one of the eight best songs. That's the level of songwriting and songs that were coming in. So that was a big part of the change for Making Your Mind Up is that it'd be much more current professional level of artists and singers and songwriters. But something that we did have to agree on for the first year of Making Your Mind Up was we didn't name the composers. One thing that frightened them off was being associated with failure, which is something that frightens artists off in the UK. And one of the writers in First Making Your Mind Up was Gary Barlow. Now that is quite a revelation. So we were at a point where the UK was attracting big songwriters and well-known artists to take part in the national selection. And Sweden was on a similar timeline. As we heard earlier, Krista Bjorkman took the helm of Melody Festivalen in 2002 and over the next 10 years turned the competition around. But hadn't achieved the real goal converting Melfest success into Eurovision success. For that reason, he found himself asking this question in 2010. Why do we bomb in the Eurovision? We just couldn't figure it out. And we looked at all these new countries that had come in from the old Eastern countries, and they were like flavorful and colorful and spicy. And, you know, it was like huge emotions. And we we stood there with our icy cold minimalistic Swedish output. And then after 2010, we sat down and said, you know, we just have to go all in on the act. We just have to stop having the same people as backup singers and dancers and handpick something that enhances the artist. So the change was instant. Was it not, Krista? In 2011, Sweden came third. The following year, they won. And for the rest of the decade, their average result was fifth place. And that's after realising that the live performance itself was the missing piece of the puzzle. Carrie Grant. It's a really interesting thing, particularly as a coach, looking at performance and why performances work and why people feel an affinity with them or they resonate with them. And I think Eurovision has three modes. It has the songs that are absolute sing-along classics that have got a little bit of a dance routine that we can catch on to very quickly and we can sing to. Then it has a kind of classic great song. Every now and again, just a great song will win Eurovision. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the most outstanding performance in terms of its showiness. It might just be someone at a piano singing. 
And then the third thing is when you just get an iconic performance where you just, it's, it's anthemic, it's iconic. I guess Katrina would be in that bracket too. But any of those three modes can cut through and have been seen to, to produce winners. I think what the UK does is it doesn't quite know what it is. So we either try to cover all bases and miss all of them, or we just go, no, let's just put a pop song in and we don't care. I feel like we've kind of done I don't care in the last few years and we're just going to put a pop song in. And of course, no one's interested because he's not saying anything. It doesn't say enough. It's not a good enough song to be a classic song. It's not iconic enough to be like a Conchita. So it doesn't doesn't hit anywhere. So you can have a song that is a really wonderful song. You can have uh, an artist who we all think, oh, they're lovely. They, they you know they're really great great looking, or they relate to us in some way. But if you do not have the performance on the night, and by have the performance, I mean earth shatteringly it was a moment you had to be there kind of performance then you are not going to win because out of 24 countries or more there will be artists that do are able to do that emma kelly agrees i think a lot of the songs they're just so forgettable because people tend to think well there is a formula for your vision and as we know in the last 15 years particularly the last decade that has changed massively there is no formula for your vision song And I think if you go back 20 years, you can kind of see people were having a little bit more fun. The entries were having a little bit more fun with what they were sending. There was dance songs, there was pop, then there was ballads, and there was like a good mix of things. Whereas now we'll send somebody who has a decent voice, really good voice, but we're not going to put the effort into the staging or the actual song or mix things up. I think there's three keys to success when it comes to Eurovision. You need a good song, a good vocalist, and good staging. Here's Paul Jordan with a couple of examples of when the staging has played a big part in the UK's result. The live performance absolutely is everything. If it's a good song, that'll go some way. If it's a good performance, a good spectacle, that'll go the other way. But you need to have that person to sing it. But inversely, the UK has done pretty well with quite poor songs over the years. 2009, My Time, Jay Dewan. Yes, it was written by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Diane Warren. You know, that song compared to their major hits in the world, you know, it was a very poor, I think, version of of their previous work. Uh, But that said, Jay did a, a brilliant performance. You know, she carried on, even got hit in the face with the violin and yet carried on regardless. But even, you know, look back to Blue, great song, but the staging was awful. Um, and it's one of those things where that could have been the record company, in fact, that were pulling the strings there. I'm not going to blame the BBC fully for that, but you just never know um, what goes on behind closed doors in terms of those decisions. When it comes to voting at Eurovision, you have to be seen, liked and remembered to score points. There's typically around 26 songs in the grand final, and each country only gives points to their top 10 favourites. So if you send a bad song that nobody likes, you could come home with as many points as you would if you sent an average song that people think is inoffensive. You could be everybody's 11th favourite and still come home with nothing. Eurovision doesn't pay for being average. Eurovision pays for being fantastic. And it's fair to say that the UK, throughout the majority of the time since the turn of the century, has not been fantastic and there was always something letting each entry down. So by 2019, after a high of just 11th place that decade and a flip-flop approach to choosing the song and artist, the BBC opted for a rather peculiar national selection process. Six singers, but just three songs, each performed 
in a different musical style. That's terrible. That's bullshit. Joust is a music producer who represented Norway at Eurovision in 2017, achieving 10th place in the grand final. I do understand why the artists in UK don't want to do Eurovision because that's not a way to do music. Like, an artist wouldn't do that. A songwriter wouldn't do that either. Like, if I write a song, I'm not going to have a lot of different artists record that song and just choose one later. That's not how it works. Like, an artist needs to kind of find their song or write the song or continue writing on a song that has already been started. And they have to choose the song because it's a song that they like and that it's a song that reflects their opinion somehow. So if, if there's a song about, I believe that the universe is bigger than a billion light years, then you have to actually believe that the universe is bigger than a billion light years. And if there's a song called, I believe in a thing called love, you gotta be a person that actually believes in a thing called love. The song that won the national selection in 2019 was called Bigger Than Us, and indeed wasn't written by the artist who performed it on stage, Michael Rice. He went on to Tel Aviv for Eurovision and returned with just 11 points. Oh, and the UK's fourth last place finish since Gemini. So for 2020, the BBC again changed tack. They dropped the national selection process and made the selection internally with the aid of record label BMG. If you're going to do a national final, you want people, even if they don't win, to be able to have some kind of success of it. Otherwise, why would people enter? Lee Smithers took up the role of series producer of the BBC's Eurovision coverage in 2019. He explains why the BBC made this decision, with one big factor being a certain downside to running a national selection on TV. For the BBC, it's quite difficult because you can attract a certain talent to it, but you can't nurture them afterwards because we're not a record label. So BBC Studios can call up the talent and they might have a song ready to go. But that's sort of a quick fix. It doesn't fix the long-term problem. There's no real support from a, a music point of view because we can't help some, an artist that doesn't do well at Eurovision after that if there's no support. If no one picks them up from a label, that's the main thing. It's the care for the artist. In 2020, the contest was cancelled for the first time in its history because of the coronavirus pandemic. But the internal selection approach returned in 2021 and James Newman was chosen, as was his song Embers. James was an award-winning songwriter. His success at writing music speaks for itself. But he had never performed before, nor had he released any music as an artist. So how did he do? Cast your minds back to the start. You'll remember. And the United Kingdom gets from the public Zero points. And with that, we're at the present day, 2022. We've looked back, but now we must look forward. Here's Joust. My way of doing Eurovision is just to make a song that is as good as possible. Not thinking of Eurovision, but only thinking of the song and the potential artist for that song. And I feel like in order for the general population of UK to kind of like the contest is to make them realize that uh, the song they have is a good song. So like, for instance, when I, I don't remember what year Euphoria won. I remember that year and I remember that song before the contest. I remember listening to the radio and that song came on every now and then and I liked the song. It was like a normal 
awesome song on the radio. And suddenly, one day, Eurovision was on TV, and then that song came. And I was like, oh, that's the song I've been hearing at the radio that I actually like. And I believe if that happened to <laughs> to the UK population, that they actually like the song, and then they sit by the, the TV and watch the show and they are like kind of laughing and like oh this is going to be so much fun and then they see that song and hey wait a minute i actually like that song <laughs> that's the thing i think that is needed for like the general population of uk to like the contest so in order for the uk to change its fortunes it's not just the music that must change it's the public perceptions of eurovision in the country too paul jordan I think in order to change the public perception, you need you definitely need a good result. You really need a serious approach. You need that to be communicated. You need to really challenge those stereotypes. But I don't know if there is that appetite to do so. Um, certainly, I think the BBC have a role in terms of the documentaries they put on, in terms of the things that they do on their social media platforms. You know, for so long, they've looked back. They always have the gimmick acts. They always have boxers ripping their skirts off you know, on their Twitter videos, on their Insta stories, all of these things. And yeah, they're part of Eurovision's history, but why aren't they showing the fantastic entry from Turkey in 2010? Why aren't they showing some of the really big hits that Eurovision's created over the years? And um, look at Duncan Lawrence, the Dutch winner from 2019. You know, he had a, a big hit that went viral with TikTok. You know, this is where Eurovision's at. There's a whole new generation now coming up that don't have this negative perception. They see this as a really exciting music show that they follow on social media, that they watch along, they copy the dance routines. You only have to look at Iceland's entry from 2020 and 2021 to see how that can really capture a mood. I think that's perhaps the way forward. You know, if we get a good result, we can say, actually, look, we put in the effort and it's paid off. And the countries that I would say are more like the UK in terms of their Eurovision journey are both Germany and the Netherlands. I'd say the Netherlands especially, they were very cynical. For nearly 10 years, they failed to qualify year upon year. They used to blame politics. They blamed Eastern Europe. They said that it was all a reflection of power slipping eastwards and the Netherlands being irrelevant. And now look at them. You know, they finally won after more than 40 years. They've also qualified year upon year. And they've got artists now as a result that want to take part. And I think hosting it definitely helped in Rotterdam. I think they were very proud of hosting it after so long but also the fact that they're able to do it in a year that people really needed Eurovision and I think if anything people say it's irrelevant I think if anything the pandemic has taught us is the power of being together and for one night rising above politics there's nothing else like it in the world and I think it's a really powerful thing and I think it's um, much needed especially these days. There's a lot to reflect on over the last 25 years and a lot to take in to look ahead to the future. Since Katrina's win in 1997, the UK has picked up just three results inside the top ten. Alongside those, they finished last five times, two of which with no points at all. Think about it, the UK now has as many last place finishes as it does victories. So where has it been going wrong? We could easily look back at every UK entry and criticise something, whether the live performance wasn't up to scratch, Maybe the vocals were shaky, or the song itself simply wasn't good enough. It's not politics, and it never has been, but Terry Wogan's negative attitude and over-reliance on the politics excuse has seeped into the general public's conscience, tarnishing the reputation of the competition in the UK. And that hasn't just impacted the viewing public, but the music industry too. We've seen that artists think Eurovision is a risk, and songwriters don't want to be associated with failure. 
But equally, the BBC's lack of a consistent approach has meant there's never been enough time for the ship to steady, like it has in Sweden. It's a vicious circle, really. The UK needs to send high-quality entries if it wants to be successful. But why would professional and already successful artists go to Eurovision if the media coverage continues to incorrectly suggest that politics, not musical quality, is the deciding factor for those who vote? For that reason, there's many elements that need to change in the UK. The BBC needs to send great songs, strong vocalists and produce amazing live performances. But in turn, the general perception of the competition needs to change too, to get the public on side and confirm to the music industry that Eurovision is a music competition that rewards great music. If you're a Eurovision fan, I hope you've enjoyed this exploration through the history of the UK's downfall. If you're a Eurovision critic, I hope I've been able to change your perspective on the competition. And if you're somewhere in between, I hope I've answered the questions you ask yourself every year when watching the show. Thanks for listening, and let's look forward to a bright future for the UK at the Eurovision Song Contest. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.